Welcome to Watershed Chats, presented by the Water People Podcast in collaboration with Patagonia. Watershed moments are traditionally understood as a division or distinction between two phases. Here, we sit down with experts and those having a go at building and dreaming new ways into fruition for a healthy and habitable future on planet ocean. Our podcast comes to you from the coastal land and waters of both the Bunjilung and Kabi Kabi nations. We'd like to acknowledge these traditional custodians and pay our respects to elders past, present, and emerging. We'd also like to extend that respect to all First Nations people this podcast ripples out toward. Alice Forrest is a dive master, wildlife guide, and marine biologist specializing in marine plastic pollution. Alice's fieldwork has taken her to remote islands throughout the Pacific and Indian Oceans to study marine debris on beaches and that consumed by birds, fish, and other wildlife. Freshly back from an expedition to Antarctica, Alice shares her experience of the frozen ocean and talks us through the complex conversation but simple solutions on offer in her new publication, Microplastics, Massive Problem. Alice. Hey. So, welcome to Watershed Chats. This is a place where we wanted to chat with water people, but also people who don't necessarily identify as water people who are in service of solutions in some way. And you definitely are. Yeah, Lauren and I were reflecting on how anytime there's been some sort of uh, campaign, paddle out, amazing documentary release or petition style gathering or march in town, you're there. You're, you're part- always yeah, there. You're always there. And you're <laughs> you always- show up. Yeah, you're always participating. And so we were just really stoked to chat with you because you have a range in the way you engage and participate. You know, you are there on the front lines at things like the blockades and then, you know, shark net paddle outs or all kinds of stuff. But you also have a really curious and keen mind and are doing study and research and academic pursuits to fulfill that passion you have. And so we're really just wanting to tune in with you about what it is right now that's bubbled up beyond all the other things that you are juggling and doing. So many things. And (laughs) and what it is you're focusing on right now. Awesome. It's funny you should say that actually because I was just reading about intersectional environmentalism. Have you heard about it? Yeah, we're just about to interview Leah (laughs) Thomas. Oh, amazing. Well, I really look forward to listening to that one. Yeah. Um, Yeah, and I think that's it. Like at the end of the day... I feel like I have to turn up for everything because it's all so connected. And there's definitely things that I'm very passionate about. Uh, but I think that ultimately you can't just focus on plastic and ignore everything else. Because if you're focusing so hard on plastic, for example, like I eat a plant-based diet. So I try really hard to eat plant-based wherever possible. But if I was then going out and buying pre-packaged processed food wrapped in plastic shipped from across the world, that's not going to help the problem. So I think that that's a very small example, but ultimately any issue that you look at, they're all so diversely connected that you can't just, or for me anyway, <laughs> I can't just pick one. I feel like I have to, I guess, interact with all of them and try and give as much time as I can to everything possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and also for me, I think particularly studying plastic pollution, the big ones are looking at plastic in the ocean and seeing firsthand how 
every trawl I've ever done looking at plastic on the surface we found some no matter where I've been in the world or reading about how plastic is now at the bottom of the deepest trenches in the world and you read things like this and it's so overwhelming or what we spoke about earlier with documentaries and you watch them recently and you just feel hopeless and you feel disempowered and for me the best way to feel empowered and hopeful is to do something and whether that's rocking up at a paddle out or writing an ebook or just changing whatever I can in my own life I think that taking those steps to do something is always the best antidote to feeling hopeless mm. yeah and speaking of your ebook that was something that I really wanted to zoom in on this is your second and the most recent ebook is about microplastics mm -hmm. can you talk us through why you put it together and fill us in on kind of the, the overview of microplastics, the state of microplastics now? Yeah, sure. So basically, uh, a couple of years ago now, a friend of mine who is an amazing graphic designer and another friend who is an incredible underwater photographer, uh, we just started chatting about how we could use our own skills, like whatever we have at hand to do something. And we thought maybe we should just do a book where we just make it beautiful. So we have my friend Michaela's incredible images alongside Harriet's graphic design to make it fun. And then I would bring the science, but try and communicate it in a way that people would read and understand and connect to. And then most importantly, have it really solutions focused. So it wasn't just another look at everything that's wrong. It was more like, here's some things that I've learned as a scientist that you might not know. And here's what you could do about it right now to try and make people feel a bit empowered. And I was really, just really stoked to see how many people found it useful. Like we were getting emails from people who like printed the whole book and stuck it on the walls of their office or like just people who shared it with family members or people that read it and then changed things in their life, which is my favorite emails to get where people actually did something proactive because of the book. And so since then we've talked about doing a second book for a long time and now we've had a little bit more free time, which has been great. So we've been emailing back and forward ideas and designs and paragraphs in the book for about a year now and finally we had the time to pause and actually put it together. So the new one we thought plastic is getting a lot of media now which is great, it's getting a lot of legislation change around the world which is great but one of the more hidden problems that people don't really see is those microplastics and it's something that we're definitely learning more about and it's definitely getting more mainstream but it's still really confusing because they're everywhere and we're just really starting to learn their impact so we know that, for example, there's microplastic frozen in the sea ice in the Arctic. And we know there's really high levels in Antarctica, where I also work, there's really high levels of microplastic there. And it's these really remote places that I think are the most shocking because it's just little tiny bits of plastic somehow ending up in these places. And it just, it's pretty mind boggling, I think. So for me, it was a good chance to learn more myself and then kind of disseminate that information in a way that hopefully people will find useful as well. Are those places, those remote places, uh, where it's sort of blown your mind that there's that much there, is it there because there's no one there to clean it up? Or is it there because of currents? It's kind of a mix of things. So, for example, in Antarctica, there are places where you get bigger pieces, like the ropes and fishing gear and things like that. So uh, there was a team actually that went down this year on one of the Greenpeace ships and did some cleanups on some of the islands down there. But the interesting thing about Antarctica is we expected to find some microplastic and microfibers because there are research bases there, there's tourism down there. It's small, but it's still an impact. And then they looked at the amount you would expect, for example, every time you wash a waterproof polyester, like a hiking jacket, outdoor jacket, every time you wash one of those, it sheds several thousand microfibers and they're not captured by wastewater, they go straight to the sea. So you would expect to find some fibers there coming from the research stations, for example. But 
when they looked at the amount they expected and the amount they actually found doing research trawls, it was a huge difference and there was way more plastic than they expected, which is really crazy because Antarctica is so isolated. That's why it's so amazing and pristine because you've got this circumpolar current that runs right around the whole continent. And so you get this biological isolation, which is why you get super amazing animals there you don't see anywhere else. It's why it's so cool. It's why the weather's so nuts there. It's why the whole planet is influenced by those currents moving around and it's the global conveyor belt, they call it. So the ice, the melt, the current, that shapes our whole world. And so it really is this totally unique, isolated place. And so no one knew how this plastic could get down there. Um, the new theory is that basically they get big storms that bust through that current. And so generally the current works in a really good way to keep everything out biologically mm -hmm. and with things like plastic. But when you get these big storm events, it kind of busts holes through that current and manages to flush down seawater and microplastic from the surrounding oceans mm. basically mm. so it's it's basically currents and wind and the ocean movement that's taking all that plastic down there was that a like another push for you to do this book and to focus in on this issue experiencing that yeah definitely firsthand yeah 100 percent. because you go somewhere like this and you see like for me it's the most special place i visited because you get there and you feel like I just don't belong here in the best possible way. Like this is not my place. This is a place for the penguins. This is a place for the whales. This is a place for these vast, amazing landscapes. And I'm just this puny little human who could not survive here on my own. Like you just feel really out of your place, but in the most amazing way. So mm. for me going somewhere like that and having that feeling of being, yeah, in a place we don't really belong, but then learning how much of our trash is getting down there and impacting it is really shocking. And with all of the things, like again, turning up to all the different events, it's the fastest warming place on earth. It's warming five times faster than everywhere else. They have three months more of summer now, which is a big deal when so many of the species, like the krill, are dependent on the sea ice. So it's being impacted in so many ways. And it, it's almost symbolic. Like it's this really isolated place. It's one of the last places we conquered, I guess. If that's what you want to call it as people. It's, one of the, it's still very much unexplored and undocumented. There's still a lot we don't know. And even there that's what we're impacting. Like the deep sea as well. Mm. When I was younger, it was wanted to be a deep sea explorer. I've always thought that would be the coolest job to go down and discover everything down there. It's a big mystery, but we know that there's microplastic in the organisms at the bottom of the deepest trenches on earth. And we know there's places where the seafloor is dead because it's littered with bags and bottles. So we all wear clothes. Mm -hmm. We all live in homes that are constructed probably in some way with plastic involved. We consume food that's packaged in plastics we're inhaling plastics probably when we open our mouths to speak and breathe all the time it feels overwhelming <laughs> where do we <laughs> totally start does. where do we start so i think it's definitely overwhelming i think when i first started studying it first i tried to go totally plastic free and i got really sad about it for a while like i think i was really quite just depressed about the whole issue and how it was new to me and i was learning more about it but then i would read all of the scientific papers about it and I would go, we've known about this for decades. Why didn't I know? Why didn't anyone tell me? Why wasn't I doing anything? And it was just sad. It was really sad to learn about. And I think, same again, when I started doing my honours research and looking at the plastic in the fish and then learning about the pollutants, I had this whole thing again, like, oh, there's all these chemicals associated with it as well. And just, yeah, really overwhelming. Yeah. Um, so that's why for me it became... I guess as I kind of went through this journey of learning about it and being a scientist researching it and then being an advocate and doing school talks and trying to get the word out there, 
I kind of reached a point where I was like, right, I cannot change the whole world. Like, there's just, I can't. <laughs> as hard as I try. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I would look at my dad still using plastic bags no matter how many times I told him about it. And I would go, yeah, I can't even change my family. I can't change what I'm doing. Like, I'm trying my best, but I'm still having this negative impact. And I kind of just, I guess it became a decision between feeling disempowered and defeated the whole time or taking action and just doing something. And there's this great Jane Goodall quote about, I'm going to paraphrase it here, but it's basically every single action that we do has an impact and it's up to us to decide if that's a positive or a negative impact. So every time I go to the supermarket, instead of buying something packaged, if I have the option to reach for something unpackaged or to go to the bulk shop or whatever of the millions of decisions I make every day, if I can make each one of those more and more sustainable. And, and that's, sometimes there yeah. isn't a better option. Totally. And yeah. we can be okay with that. Exactly. So we do the best that we can. Yeah, exactly. And I think like often I would do lectures and people would listen to this whole lecture and I would push things like the reusable coffee cups, the reusable bottles, like the really easy things to switch. But at the end there would inevitably be someone who would say, what about my bin bag or what about my dog poo bag? And they'd just, it was like that was a wall and they'd be like, well, I can't fix this. And so everything else is out of my reach and I tried to reshape it through through my talks and my ebooks and also just the way I live into well yeah those things maybe you're using plastic dog bags for the rest of your life but if you've got rid of most of the other plastic then that's really not a big deal and there's no point in getting hung up on what you can't change it's better to just to focus on what things we can do right now that will make a positive difference mm. what are the key things then in this book that, yes especially that are those especially actions? with microplastics yeah the thing with microplastics is most of them come from bigger plastics. So it still comes back to the same single use is basically just the worst thing that we can have. So anything on a planet with this many people, anything you throw away is crazy. And then even more so when you're making it with a material that lasts forever and we're designing products that we use for a few minutes. So anything designed in that way, like packaging and straws and coffee cups lined with plastic and all these things, just avoiding those, I think is the biggest thing anyone can do, just going reusable. And again, it connects to all of the different environmental issues. So if you're using something over and over again and maybe even repurposing it, so getting a jar with a stubby cooler for a reusable coffee cup instead of getting a takeaway coffee cup, that's great. And that impacts so many things so positively, not just the plastic pollution. So I think it's definitely about those actions going reusable. And then with the so there's basically two types of microplastics, the primary and the secondary. So the primary are the ones that are manufactured small. The secondary are things like broken down pieces of bigger plastics. So those primary microplastics are things like a lot of exfoliating face washes, whitening toothpastes. A lot of products have tiny microbeads in them, um, which were actually discovered beads, by a dentist. They're phasing out more and more, aren't they? They are, and they're illegal in some places, but there's a lot of places they're not illegal and you can still buy things with microbeads in them quite easily. Um, and they just flush straight out to sea. And they're really amazing, wonderful, organic solutions. To so many microbeads. better solutions. Yeah, yeah, it's a really easy one to switch. Yeah. And again, it's really easy to find out which products by looking online. So that's an easy one. And hopefully, again, that's one that gets legislated out eventually. Um, and then microfibers are another big one. I think that's a really hard one, particularly in a world where plastic has already become a bit of a mainstream issue. And so, so many companies are going, okay, well, let's make things from recycled plastic and then now we know that maybe doesn't really help the issue at all. So the microfibers are another really In what way? Problem. Can you talk us through that? So basically microfibers are tiny fragments of plastic, it's essentially. It's like when you, when you shake off your jacket and sun's streaming mm -hmm. through the window and you see all the little, exactly. it looks like dust mm -hmm. flying into the air. Great it's example. actually fibers. Yeah, tiny little fibers. And we're going to breathe them. We're yep. going to eat them. Yep. 
Exactly. Yeah. And they're everywhere. Like, they're, they're just everywhere. They've rained down in rainstorms on the Pyrenees. There's been literally bits of plastic raining down in mountains, which mm. is just madness. And they're these little fibres. And they've been found inside fish. They've been found inside people. They've been found everywhere. And a lot of the clothing that we have and that we use it's really great clothing for what we're doing and there isn't fantastic alternatives for a lot of the things. So like really great jackets, it's being worked on, but there still isn't a really great alternative. Or like all the yoga pants I have, they're all made of synthetic fabrics basically. And so slowly it is getting better, but there is no quick fix solution for this, unfortunately. So there are things that people can do, like trying to buy more natural materials like wool, cotton, hemp, which come bamboo. with their own Which, major exactly, environmental complications. Yes, exactly. Like bamboo, hugely water intensive for the mm. process to turn it from the plant into the fabric. Um, yeah. Well, at cotton again, water intensive. Like there's mm. all of these other things to think about. So that's again where for me it comes back to, I think locality is a big one. So I know you've talked to Helena Norbo Hodge, who's amazing. And I think her whole message is so vital in these times. It's just not, it's, like if I can buy something that's completely plastic free and amazing, but it's getting shipped from Europe, then maybe it's not the best solution. But if I can get something from the secondhand shop that is made of synthetic materials, but it's secondhand and it's local and I'm not getting anything new and it's not packaged and I wash it in a responsible way, then for me, that's going to be a better solution. So, so what, with is, the, yeah. what does washing it in a responsible way look like? Because when you said that, I, I imagine just walking into the ocean fully clothed and walking back out sun drying, and that's <laughs> probably as simple as it can get. I think that's great. Is that still going to shed well, microfibers in the ocean? Possibly. Like, yeah. And also probably the salt's not going to make your clothes last that oh, long. Yeah. So there you go, Jens, and you <laughs> have to get more clothes. and have <laughs> doing that for years <laughs> <Yeah>. too. <laughs> Yeah, it's all a vicious cycle. It's like you find one solution and there's so many ways to shoot it down. Well, we were talking but, about this the other day, the, the washing thing. So Yeah, so there's a few different things that you can do. Apparently the cycle, they've done all these different um, studies and they've showed that washing clothes with a really full load on a non-delicate cycle using cold water, so the way that you wash actually sheds a lot, lot less fibres. Mm. Uh, but also there's things that you can get. There's a Cora ball, which is a basically like a little kind of rubber ball that you throw in that catches a lot of the fibers, about a third of the fibers. Or you can get this thing called a guppy friend bag, which Patagonia sell and a bunch of other businesses. And you basically put all your clothes in the bag and wash it in the bag. And then at the end, you kind of scrape all the little bits of plastic out and put them in the bin and they end up probably in landfill, mm. but at least not in the ocean. Mm. <laughs> um, so they're better solutions. Yeah, or you can install a whole washing machine filter. Um, a lot of the brands, well, not a lot of the brands now, but some of the really great eco-conscious brands are a doing a lot of research so i know like patagonia um has teamed up with a lot of the big outdoor brands arcteryx um a lot of the big ones in the states and they're all funding millions of dollars worth of research into alternative fabrics um there's a company i work with in spain who make a lot of their clothing from recycled fishing net from the local fishermen and recycled ocean trash that they collect with the local school kids and they've got all these amazing initiatives but then they realized that microfibers were an issue so they're looking at different coatings basically to seal mm. the fibers in mm. and so they're spending a lot of money looking at that and I think that is partially really great companies with good ethoses but also public pressure so that's another really easy thing everyone can do just tell companies why they're not buying their clothes or why the companies need to act and then putting that pressure on definitely makes a difference and then also washing clothes hand washing and hanging out and then if you pour that water away from the ocean like mm. it's still not ideal there's still going to be microfibers in the environment but 
Mm. I guess it's about limiting their impact and how far they can spread. What about dryers? We're really lucky here um, that we have year-round sun. Most of us don't need to have dryers, but I can imagine they're really hard on clothing. Definitely, and yeah. All of the the lint ball that you pull out mm-hmm. is probably primarily yeah, lots of plastic. Make, yeah. Yeah, lots yeah. Of plastic. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So dryers. To be honest, I don't know that much about dryers, but I would imagine you're just catching a whole bunch of tiny little plastic fibers yeah. to And second, yeah, anything that's gonna bang your clothes around is going to shed more fibers. That's why having a full load is thought to release a lot less fibers. Or in the studies they've done, they've actually shown it releases a lot less fibers, I guess, because your clothes aren't banging around in there so Mm. much. Yeah. What about just not washing so much? That is a a great solution. Yeah, actually, um, Icebreaker, who make the wool thermals, they have a whole campaign at the moment, which is basically buy our clothes because you have to wash them less because wool breathes and it doesn't get Mm. stinky like synthetics, which is true. Um, (laughs) I've definitely sweated in synthetic, like, uniforms at work and things, and they get a lot stinkier, (laughs) whereas I wear a lot of wool thermals now for work, and I can wear them for months even, and I never Mm. wash them. I might be a little bit stinky. However, it's worth it. (laughs) Totally worth it. Yeah. Well, it's great to hear those specifics um, from your book and from your approach. Are there any other key points that you like to share with people from that project? I think just doing your best. I think that's what it comes down to. I think it's about trying to find any little areas that you can improve and not getting hung up on what you can't do or... I guess comparing yourself to other people and what they're doing, it's really just looking like everyone has a completely different life and different pressures. And like my life is very different from a mum in the city with kids she has to get to school and having to buy food for them. It's like it's just so, like there's completely different stories mm. here. And I think it's about looking at what you can do in your own life, basically. Okay, so with that in mind, then it seems to me that your first hand experiences in your life have been really impactful. Mm-hmm. Um, how can people who say live in an urban situation create that first-hand experience like kind of simulate it for themselves like is it looking is it taking the filter out of your washing machine and actually seeing it after perhaps a month or is there any have you got any suggestions with that where it's like okay where can you go now because we can't all go to Antarctica and have that experience. And we can't all go just say to the the bottom of Tassie Mm. and see all that marine debris on that Southwest coast. So how do you simulate that in our own little spaces here so that Mm. you create that feeling that then motivates you? Because most of us can read a book, watch a doco, hear hear something like this and think about it and and respond like in a meaningful way, but then forget about it tomorrow or next week or yeah. next month. Like it's what ex- is that first experience? The experiential experience? knowledge that sticks. Have it's, you got any suggestions such a good for question. that? I feel like I've spent my whole life trying to figure out how to get people over that wall, like past that tipping point from learning about an issue to taking ownership and guardianship and trying to change their own lives. And I wish I had a great silver bullet answer, mm. but I would say just... If you just start looking like there's like plastic free July, for example, I think is a great initiative for that reason, because it gets people to try and go plastic free for a month. And let's be honest, it's inevitable you're going to fail. But that failure is part of the journey and just that trying and just opening your eyes to, oh, there is actually so much plastic in my house. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really it more than anything, just starting to look at what is around you and whether that's just within the kitchen or within the bathroom or whether that's going to a local beach or waterway and just looking like I found when I first started I guess learning about this issue at all was probably 10 years ago 
I just started scuba diving. I wanted more experience. So I joined a local scuba diving group and part of what they did was cleanups. And for me, doing the cleanups every week and finding trash every single week was shocking. And once I started doing it and then doing beach cleanups, I just became that person that everywhere you walk is picking up trash because I saw it. And other people would often say, oh, I just didn't even notice that. And mm -hmm. it's like, we're so good at putting those blinkers on and just seeing what we want to see. So it's really, call it whatever you want it to be, expanding your consciousness in a bigger sense or just opening your eyes up to what's around you and starting to look. So I guess it's tricky because that experiential change, you still need that motivation mm. to start looking in the first place. Mm. And I don't know what that tipping point yeah, it's is. It's pretty hard to, to look <laughs> if it's a micro yeah. issue like this. Yeah, that's One true. thing I actually find interesting is, uh, especially around here, so if anyone's listening to this who are on the East Coast, so actually any coast, it doesn't matter, when you get your um, significant swells, like mm -hmm. if we get a south swell on the east coast here yeah. and we live close to a northern corner of a beach, mm -hmm. it is like clockwork that after a south swell you go to the northern corner, so the opposing end of a beach, yeah. and it works like a net and you will find so much plastic and mm -hmm. just marine debris there. So I think that's an interesting one for people to cotton on to is like Definitely. you might go to your beach and not see it uh, that much at your place. But then if you were to go after these sort of cycles that come through from wherever else and and then really look in those corners that you can just sort of logically assume are like, you know, sort of catches mitts. Totally. Then that's yeah. a really, because for me around here for quite a few years, I was like, oh, this is not too bad. We're it's all right. So clean. You know, yeah. We went and sailed the coast and we did our kayak trip 10, 10 years ago from Byron to Sydney and we were coming in in all those northern corners to hide from the wind mm -hmm. and it was just like clockwork every single one of them was yeah, packed totally. with rubbish i just wanted to move uh just transition a little bit from the external to the internal impact of plastic specifically on uh fish mm -hmm. and your research around finding plastics in fish in the pacific so that was another depressing moment <laughs> about the plastic in the fish. Um, there was actually research from other parts of the world before I did my research. So uh, Dr. Chelsea Roshman, for example, she's from the States, and she looked at fish markets in Indonesia and the USA and found that around two-thirds of oysters, mussels, and also fish had plastic in their guts. So it was something that I kind of knew and it was on my radar, and then I was doing some work in... Uh, the South Pacific on a very remote island called Henderson Island, which is in the Pitcairn group. And we found literally the most plastic polluted beach in the world there. So we started, we got there and it was just like you say, it was one of those beaches, which was just like a catcher's mitt for trash. And it was the most pristine beach. No one lives anywhere near there. But when you hiked over the back, there was just this corner, actually this whole beach, but a corner of the island that was just all trash as far as you could see. And when we dug down in the sand, it was trash. And every day the tide wow. washed up, I think we counted once we did all the stats, it was about 3,500 pieces of trash a day washing up on the beach. Um, so once we started documenting that plastic, it actually turned out to be the, the most plastic polluted beach on the planet documented mm. so far. And it was in the middle of nowhere. And so while there, I started looking inside the fish. So we had a local man from Pitcairn on the island with us helping run our little science camp and he would catch fish to eat. So I started taking them and looking inside their intestines and their stomachs and straight away we started finding plastic. And I would have been shocked if we didn't find plastic because it was everywhere and every time we went snorkeling off the beach you could see like bits of trash wrapped around the coral bombies and things like that. Like, it, was, it was pretty crazy because it was right at the bottom of that South Pacific gyre, so that big ocean current and it just brought everything in. So that's what kind of got it started looking in those fish and then 
that kind of launched into this bigger project where we thought, well, where else in the South Pacific is this plastic? And so that's when I went and sailed through French Polynesia and started going to the fish markets and the local fishermen there and basically just elbow deep in fish guts and a bowl of water. It was quite rudimentary techniques because they were very remote locations and just going through and looking. So it wasn't even the microscopic pieces of plastic. So it's very likely there's even more plastic that I wasn't seeing, but just the five millimeters or less, but visible was basically what I was looking for. So not nanoplastic, which is another one they're talking about now, which is so small, you only see it with a microscope. I wasn't looking at the nanoplastics, just the microplastics, which are usually sesame seed sized. And I was finding those and we found them in French Polynesia and on Henderson Island, none in Australia, which was great, um, but it was quite a small sample size here. So it's very possible and very likely there's a lot of plastic in the fish here and microfibers have been found in the fish in Sydney. So yeah, it was a pretty interesting journey. And I was talking to you earlier about how one of the most interesting parts for me was coming from doing a lot of plastic pollution research and outreach in Australia and talking to people who often say things like, oh, I don't want to know because I really love eating seafood and I don't want to hear about that it might be full of plastic or you know, I really love my takeaway coffee and it's too inconvenient to change. And people often have this really human ability to put their heads in the sand and go, well, I don't want to hear about those things. And one of the most interesting things for me in French Polynesia particularly, where they have such a strong connection to the ocean, was to talk to local people who wanted to know deeply, wanted to know what was happening with their fish. And they were so helpful and they would say things like, that's my fridge basically, or that's my supermarket, or I'm so connected to this. Like if the fish are eating the plastic, I'm eating the plastic. And they just had this inherent understanding of what was happening and how the ocean was impacting them. So that was really cool to see mm. the different mentality over there and how the people really wanted to know, which was also a good boost because it's depressing learning mm. things like that. Mm. I want to get a little bit more deeply anthropocentric here. So um, if most of the plastic is concentrated in the guts and intestines mm -hmm. of the fish, usually humans aren't eating those parts of the fish. Yeah. Does that mean we're exempt from Great consuming plastic? <laughs> so there's a couple of different answers here. Firstly, the physical pieces of plastic themselves. Um, the first pilot studies have been done on human stool samples and they found plastic in every human poop that they've looked at. It was a very small study, just a pilot study, but it's likely that most people are eating actual pieces of plastic. And also in a physical plastic kind of way, there's been studies showing that tiny pieces of plastic can actually move. They can cross cellular barriers, basically. So they can actually move. The study, for example, I read the other day was mussels being fed tiny microplastic fibres then the mussels are fed to the crabs and then the microplastics are found in the crab's blood. So they've moved from the stomach into the blood. So the tiny pieces of physical plastic can move around, which definitely is harmful in a myriad of ways that we don't fully understand yet and are only just starting to be researched. But the other more insidious and even more invisible effect is the pollutants. So plastic itself is made with a range of potentially quite harmful chemicals, a lot of things like flame retardants, um, I could throw a lot of long words out here, um, <laughs> polybrominated diphenyl ethers and just all of these really harmful chemicals that give the plastic malleability or colour or different qualities. And then the plastic, when it's in the ocean, also acts like a sponge. So any persistent organic pollutants, things like heavy metals, mercury, DDT, things that are in the water and then they sorb onto the outside of that plastic. And then when the animals eat those plastics, all of those pollutants basically prefer to be in fatty tissue than on the plastic. So they'll migrate off into the animals. And you see this with pollutants around the world. So for example, 
up in the Northern Hemisphere, one of the craziest examples I've read is there was um, a study on flame-retardant orcas and these fireproof orcas because basically the, they were feeding in an area where chemicals are coming out from um, nearby factories into the fish that they were eating and because they're top of the food chain, they accumulate all of the chemicals from everything under them. So they had these orcas that the levels of flame-retardant in their system were so high that they were technically fireproof. Um, and that's a crazy example, but it's a pretty good illustration of what happens to mm. apex predators like us who are at the top of the food chain who then accumulate pollutants from everything we eat below us. Um, so there's the physical side where seafood eaters, studies have shown they're eating thousands of pieces of plastic every year, the physical pieces, but in addition to that, it's likely that a whole range of pollutants, even if we don't touch those physical pieces, even if the fish poop them out, which is what a lot of them look like they were doing in my study, it still a massive and terrifying impact because those chemicals will move into the tissue which is then eaten by all the animals and us. What are some of the potential health impacts of having bodies filled with plastics and their associated chemical concoctions? It's so wide-ranging honestly there's pretty much any harmful medical condition you can think of there's studies linking that to different plastic related chemicals so from asthma to just anything like cancer, cell deformation. Um, a big one is endocrine disruptors. So um, that's why you see BPA-free plastics a lot now because BPA was linked to endocrine disruption, which is basically it messes with all your hormones. Same with phthalates, which are another common plastic additive. They're an endocrine disruptor. So a lot of it is messing with our hormone system. And that's, for yeah. we're talking fertility, the massive um, yeah. waves of infertility that we're seeing, especially exactly. in Western industrialized yeah. nations. Yeah, and it's hard be. to say this person use this plastic and that's what caused this because there's so many impacts in our society and so many harmful things that we do but there are definitely strong links between those chemicals and an infinite amount of really harmful diseases and issues for people yeah so when it comes to diet then is that your recommendation plant-based because of those factors when you think of so seafood, many reasons yeah uh, i know there's a whole <laughs> lot more attached yeah. to that for <laughs> That's all, but yeah, is that... Yeah, um, definitely. Or even, like, I know it's not realistic for everyone to eat plant-based everywhere as well. That's another factor, I guess, of that environmental inclusivity. Mm -hmm. Like, they're, it's a really luxurious choice for me to be able to say, well, I'm only going to eat plant-based and I'm getting it from my farmer's market. It's like, that is the height of luxury, really. Yeah. yeah, so privileged to be able to do that. And not everybody has that access. Like, in French Polynesia, there's no way I'm going to go to that island and go to Morea and say to my friends, stop eating fish, because that's what they do. It's how they live. That's their main food source. It's also really unsustainable for me to say, you should be shipping in chickpeas because it just doesn't make any <laughs> sense. Um, but it is, I think, partially just trying to decrease where possible. So maybe if it is people that are eating seafood, less is better. And also smaller is generally better with a lot of those pollutants. So the higher up in the food chain, generally, um, the more toxic those animals are. So if you're eating a massive marlin, it's also not that great for sustainability eating the big ones um, but they're likely to be much more loaded with pollutants so smaller animals generally are better um, so there are certain things that you can do but I think again it's just so dependent on where you are and what options you have mm, yeah been really well said mm. is there um, sort of like a, a sign-off line that you have for people when it comes to discussing plastics right now where you're just like what's the last thing you want to leave with someone when you, you have a small window of opportunity 
to talk about microplastics and plastics in this way. Good question. <laughs> think of a catchphrase or something. <laughs> you need a micro statement about microplastics. <laughs> micro statement about microplastics. <laughs> ah, just do what you can. I think that's what it keeps coming back to, which sounds like a bit of a cop out, like, oh, just try your best. But I think that's ultimately what it comes back to. It's just doing what you can, what suits you and the best that you can do. So mm. think reusable, try and focus on whatever you can that's local, reusable, like move away from single-use yeah. consuming, yeah. fast-paced and move back towards local, growing your own, recycling, clothes, whatever it might be and just doing what you can mm. locally, just doing your best. You said that so amazingly at the start actually, which really struck me. I hadn't really heard it like this before where you said we're making these things that last forever for uses that are literally like a minute long. Yeah, it's like just things crazy. like a wrapper where you just unwrap it, throw it away, done. Yeah. The ridiculous contrast of that is just outrageous. So I think that yeah. to me that's something that yeah, I won't forget anytime soon. And I think that's what it comes down to, just that idea that hey, it's madness that we're designing these things in yeah. this way. But that's what makes the whole plastic pollution issue so positive, that we have all the solutions that we need already. Like plastic itself is not an inherently evil material but the way we're using it is just stupid basically yeah. it's and an issue of design it's, it's an issue yeah. of creativity and design yeah exactly that's and totally respect, it because mm -hmm. isn't it a strange thing i remember david d rothschild who did the plastiki boat a few years ago yeah, out of all awesome. the recycled and created that recycled plastic uh bonding agent like a glue so the whole thing was out of recycled PT. So i remember he was trying to popularize the idea that we need to love plastics like we can't look at things that are made of plastic and say, you know, that's just crap, that's mm -hmm. of a shit quality and not appreciate as much as we do wood or metal or other yeah. materials. And I'm just wondering, do you have any thoughts around that? Like, is that something we need to fundamentally shift? Is this appreciation for this stuff that can last, like will outlast our generations yeah. and beyond for so long? That can save lives too. I yeah. mean, medical applications are exactly incredible. Like yeah, we need to exactly. de not like de demonize it in a, in a way and just really respect it for how powerful it is. Yeah, yeah, mm. it is. And really appreciate like it's something like 8% of global oil is used to make plastic products and then a lot of them are thrown away. So in this world, again, it's also connected. So it's about that fossil fuel issue as well. We're just. Like if you're going to an anti-fossil fuel rally and drinking out of a plastic bottle, maybe it's time to make those connections as well. And I think that's what it is. It's all, yeah, it's also fundamentally connected. So I think if we value it more for where it came from and also appreciate the impact, the negative impact that it can have, I think adding value to it is definitely, and that's what's been shown to work as well in terms of getting the plastic back, like a bottle refund system, mm. putting value on those items um, instead of having them just be seen as trash. Did you get in the water in Antarctica? Yes. <laughs> I didn't get to get in and snorkel, which I'm hanging out to do. Every year I get back down there and keep putting the pressure oh, wow. on, like, wouldn't it be great if you'd let me take people free diving? <laughs> so hopefully one day. Um, but in the meantime, I jumped in a few times. And the funniest thing was that it was shockingly cold. Basically, I had a fantastic boss who let us do a sneaky jump in after we'd, because we take passengers down there. And so my job is to drive the boats around and show them things and teach them things. And then also take them on little hikes and things. So this one day we dropped everyone off, we'd done a hike, we'd taken them all back to the ship and we were just packing up. We have little flags so that people stay on trails and can't wander off and harass things. So we're packing up all the flags and then my boss was like, okay, if you want, you can quickly jump in now. So there was three of us and we just stripped down to our undies and dove straight in. And the funniest thing was that there was like these big 
bits of ice all around and penguins and this perfect Antarctic scene, these massive glaciated mountains in the back. And we dove in and I always like to have my eyes open and I often like to open my mouth when I jump in the water, which is a bit weird probably, but I just like, I don't know, the saltiness. I just like it all being in there in my face. So I dove in and just like opened my eyes and my mouth. It was just like, oh, just for a second, it was beautiful. And then it just was pure penguin shit. Like it looked so clean, but it tasted awful and I don't even remember the cold I just remember coming back up and just being like <laughs> just just feeling disgusting and my tongue felt like it was covered in penguin poo and I don't know like penguin poo is the smelliest thing that you can imagine it's just like rotten fish it's awful and it's just all in my face and it was awful it looked so clean and it was not <laughs> This episode of Watershed Chats is presented by Patagonia, whose purpose-driven mission is to use business to protect our home planet. Thanks to our sound engineer and musician, Shannon Sol Carroll, and artist-in-residence, Chris Miyashiro. On behalf of myself, Lauren Hill, and my co-host, Dave Rastovich, thanks for listening with us. Learn more at waterpeoplepodcast.com.